Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Canada plans to continue sending equipment to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia. Canada will send eight armored vehicles to Ukraine in the coming weeks, and we will continue to supply Ukraine with the equipment that it needs to fight and win. Ottawa police say they will not tolerate any sort of long-term occupation as hundreds of bikers head to the capital. Organizers and participants will be held accountable for actions before, during, and after the event. For example, many of the individuals charged in the unlawful protest in February have conditions to not be in Ottawa. Those individuals must respect those conditions set out by the court. If those conditions are breached, those individuals will be arrested and charged. And Preston Manning urges Conservative leadership contenders not to launch personal attacks at each other. He sort of said not only is it harming the, the image of the party, but it could also really make it much harder to, to heal divisions that sort of naturally occur during a leadership race. It's Friday, April 29th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Good morning, Joanna. Good morning, Mark. So we heard from Canada's Defence Minister, Anita Anand, yesterday that this country is going to continue sending equipment to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia. What's the latest on that, and, and is there anything changing here, or is it just more of what Canada has been offering in terms of, of military support, equipment, and, and other uh, tools uh, since this conflict began? I think the biggest change that was really stressed yesterday when Anand met with her counterpart, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at the Pentagon, it was her first official visit there as Defense Minister, was really the speed at which weapons and aid and other training are being being delivered. So there was not a lot of details yesterday. I think we were expecting a little bit more to be said about, uh, you know, efforts to modernize NORAD, for example. But but the one thing that, that did come out of this was an unconfirmed that Canadians are right now helping to train Ukrainians on these cannons that Canada delivered last week. And she wouldn't say where, but sources told uh, my Canadian press colleague, reporter Lee Berthume, that it's, it's not inside Ukraine, so that's clear, but another country, Eastern Europe. Um, and she sort of highlighted the $8 billion in military spending over the next five years that Canada promised in its budget. Um, and she and Austin also mentioned the eight armored vehicles that are due soon. But they, they really both stressed that the pace at which this equipment, training, and aid is being delivered is increasing by the day. Um, Austin mentioned, for example, it just took a couple of days for howitzers from this package that U.S. President Biden had signed last week to show up on the actual battlefield. And Anand says Canada will keep sending this equipment to Ukraine um, that Ukraine needs to fight and to win. So I, so I think they're, they're perhaps becoming, you know, it's, it's been going on for a little while now, um, and they are perhaps becoming more efficient uh, in the sort of unique kind of delivery of, of this sort of aid over there. Yeah. And I guess the question, though, still remains, and I don't know if there were any clues coming out of yesterday's events. Uh, how far will Canada, the United States, and other Western allies, NATO members, how far will they go after that, right? Is it more of this kind of support, uh, or will it ever be something in addition to that? Right, and that, that has been the big question all along, and sort of the thorniest 
issue is if we're actually talking about NATO countries heading into Ukraine, then NATO is effectively at war with Russia. And, there, and then there's all sorts of things that follow on as knock-on effects from that. And, and they've been sort of clear that they don't want to go there, that they that there's, you know, they're not going to be imposing a no-fly zone, for example, that that would require you know, actually enforcing it. And that, again, could trigger a war with Russia. So it, I think it remains to be seen where this is going. I think there's a, a recognition by by Europe and, and North America and those allied countries that this is a very serious thing that does need to be contained and to be stopped. And it looks like right now they're still in a place where they are sending aid to Ukraine to help it solve its own problem, I guess. That's uh, not quite the way to put it, but they're they're sort of helping Ukraine do this on its own with that kind of support rather yeah. than coming in and taking over. All right. Let's turn to the events in Ottawa today. It looks like we're going to see another protest, the Rolling Thunder motorcycle uh, demonstration that's going to roll through downtown Ottawa. And the police have been saying they're they're not going to tolerate anything like what we saw earlier this year when there were trucks parked in downtown Ottawa and and people refusing to leave. What do you expect from today? Uh, I think a lot of people are assuming the police are going to handle it differently, that the outcome is going to be a lot different. But uh, the message is a very similar one, isn't it? It is. So so Ottawa is interim police chief Steve Bell was really warning, like you said, they're not going to tolerate any sort of longer term occupation of the capital. The, there's, a, there's a route for the motorcycles to go. They're not going to let them stop anywhere. They have an exclusion zone um, in the downtown core. So I think the lesson police learned was really the big mistake earlier this year was letting those trucks in and park there to begin with. And remember, that's something the police actually let them do, right? That wasn't, that wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just expecting the, poli- the, uh, the trucks to keep rolling through downtown on our route. Everyone knew they were going to come and park, and so they let them come and park, and then the problem was they didn't leave. And ahead of time, frankly, organizers were essentially forecasting that they weren't going to leave. That, that group, uh, you know, not everyone, but many of the key people involved had sort of stated aims to not go until what they – got, which was a lifting of all vaccine and mask mandates, other COVID restrictions, um, and and some of them calling for the Liberal government to be overthrown, that they weren't going to leave until that happened. So while there is some overlap in terms of some of the organizers involved and some of the messaging around it, um, you know, they're calling it a, a rally for freedom, essentially, they're, they're, we're not seeing the same kind of messaging about plans to stay. This, this I think, will, will look a little bit more like the kinds of protests that we are used to. But, of, of course, everyone's on edge about it. The police, uh, I imagine, do not want to repeat the mistakes. Residents in the city do not want to live through what they lived through for three weeks earlier this year where everything was gridlocked and there was diesel fumes and noise and, and honking for days on end. And, you know, the Liberal government ended up invoking the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history to you know, as, as their response to, to the problem. So police, you know, Bell said yesterday the police service has learned a lot from that experience. And, and he's also, you know, mentioned that officers will arrest any of the Freedom Convoy protesters who have been ordered by courts as part of their bail conditions to stay away from the city as a condition of their release. So obviously that's something that didn't exist last time. There wasn't any sort of actual orders um, preventing some of these people from, from coming to Ottawa. So, 
so I do I do expect to it to have quite a different look and feel um, just because it's hard to imagine everyone repeating the same mistakes but I do think everyone um, is frankly watching really closely to see exactly what happens yeah all right Finally, Joanna, let's talk about the conservative leadership race and um, a longtime conservative figure in Canadian politics, Preston Manning, the former leader of the Reform Party, a predecessor to the to the current Conservative Party, um, has has said the the leadership candidates have got to turn it down a notch, basically, stop attacking each other, stop lobbing personal attacks at each other, or it's going to hurt the party. I know a lot of people have been making that comment and observing that, that this campaign has started off in a, with a very nasty tone. Um, do you think that, that Preston Manning's uh, intervention here is, is going to make a difference? So this was a letter that CBC obtained that Manning had sent to conservative leadership campaigns. Um, and he, you know, he is seen as an elder statesman in the conservative movement, and one would think that his words would carry some weight. But I also think this has been, for for many people, um, a race about rejecting history and institutions and sort of trying to do things differently. And that that is a very strong message coming to the Pierre Polyev campaign, for example, who has been drawing huge crowds of people and, you know, yesterday came out with a another, you know, policies sort of taking on the Bank of Canada and those sorts of things. So so I think it'll be interesting to see whether whether people are listening to the sort of traditional elder statesmen um, in in the movement, whether that sort of thing carries any weight anymore or as much as it used to. But you know, the idea of divisions in a party, you know, he sort of said not only is it harming the the image of the party, but it could also really make it much harder to to heal divisions that sort of naturally occur during a leadership race yeah. once the race is over. And and really, I mean, he knows what he's talking about. Those divisions played a big role, a crucial role, the only role, really, in Manning's political life to begin with. The conservative movement had split into the Reform Party, which he founded and led, and the progressive conservatives, and, and also, to an extent, the Bloc Québécois. Liberals were then in power for about a dozen years. Um, so, so there's there really are consequences to this kind of, of splintering. Um, he says they should really focus on policy and also keep in mind that their opponents are likely keeping files and all the terrible things they've said about each other um, to bring up later on. So there are always a lot of personal attacks in every leadership race, especially the behind the scenes, frankly, um, and this one's no different. But I, but I do think th- there is a feeling that some of it has been a, li- a little sharper um, than we've seen before and, and quite more public and you know, Patrick Brown accused Pierre Polyev, for example, of discriminatory, discriminatory policies because of his previous support for the ban on kneecaps, weren't at citizenship ceremonies. Polyev then shot back by calling Brown a liar. Um, and then he's gone after Jean Charest, former Quebec premier, saying he's not a true conservative because he was liberal premier in Quebec. Charest then went after Polyev for supporting the Freedom Convoy saying he was seeking the endorsement of people who break the law. So there's really, there are a lot of policies being proposed. I don't want to suggest this is only a horse fake sort of right. elbows up sort of thing. But but those things obviously get a lot of attention and they and they can really um, create a lot of camps that, I, you know, I think Manning has a point. It can be, it can be hard to sort of heal those things after the fact. And, and it is something that the Liberals and NDP will be watching closely and keeping tabs on. And, and, bringing up to their benefit later on. Yeah. 
All right. Going to be very interesting to watch. Joanna, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. That's Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. We will continue to work with our American allies uh, on the war in Ukraine. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Thomas Wacom argues we are helping Ukraine to permanently weaken Russia. Wacom writes, The U.S. and NATO are providing Ukraine with enough weaponry to weaken Russian invaders, but not enough to definitively defeat them. The result will be a permanently crippled Russia, left fighting an equally crippled Ukraine. Neither side is capable of winning this war, but neither is doomed to lose it. So the war goes on, getting more dangerous every day, but never dangerous enough to force an end to the fighting. The real question is how to stop the fighting. The Russians have no incentive to bring peace to Ukraine. Neither, it seems, does NATO. In the National Post, John Iveson argues Putin's escalation of nuclear threats jeopardizes NATO solidarity. Iveson writes, Putin's goal has long been to weaken NATO's solidarity. Nothing is likely to achieve that more than the threat of the nuclear option. If Putin dropped a single nuclear bomb on a Ukrainian city, the pressure on the U.S. president to move from proxy war to direct engagement would be immense. A single-use demonstration-style attack, though horrific, would likely not provoke a nuclear response from the U.S. It might, though, result in pressure to send in troops on the ground. Such a decision could shatter the consensus in NATO. In the Ottawa Citizen, Brigitte Pellerin argues Ottawa is bracing for the same craziness that afflicts the U.S. Pellerin writes, The Rolling Thunder protest is reminding me of the circus act that is Florida politics. Everywhere you look in the Sunshine State, you have politicians battling imaginary opponents on issues that shouldn't be controversial. Those who are once again poised to invade downtown Ottawa are convinced they are justified in using any and all methods in their fight against the tyranny of woke politicians. It's all fine and good to make fun of the circus that is Florida politics, but when you see the streets of downtown Ottawa clogged again, remember that we have our own version of the same obnoxious brew in Canada. Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will make a health care announcement and speak with the media in Montreal, along with Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne, Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos, and Quebec Premier François Legault. He will also take part in a Q&A discussion on Budget 2022 with Conseil du Patronat du Québec President and CEO Carl Blackburn before meeting with the Mayor of Markham, Ontario, this evening, he will join supporters for an open Liberal fundraising event in Toronto. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will be in private meetings. Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez will make an announcement in Montreal. Prairies Canada Minister Daniel Vandal and Tourism Minister Randy Boissonneau will announce federal support for some of the Edmonton region's most promising high-growth companies. FedDev Ontario Minister Helena Jasek will announce support for community and tourism sector revitalization in Guelph, Ontario. Official Languages Minister Jeanette Petipa-Taylor will make an announcement and take part in a news conference in Sudbury, Ontario. And the Minister of Families, Karina Gould, will take part in an early learning and child care conference organized by the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, April 29th. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC 
For coverage of all the week's events, our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.